Now we're going to turn to read the Bible now. Um, Joel chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes. Such as never was of old. Nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors, they scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city, they run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves, they enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes, the sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. This passage teaches us two great truths about God. The first is that he won't tolerate evil. Oppression, selfishness, self-righteousness, self-centeredness. He will judge. And like many other Bible passages, in fact, like Jesus himself, it paints a vivid picture of just how awful it will be to come to the end of our lives having to face God's judgment without the forgiveness that delivers us from it. But it does also teach the another truth. That God's mercy is unfathomably deep. 
that even though we have nothing to bring, we have no way of making it up to God or to others for things we've done wrong. If we throw ourselves on his mercy, he won't just rescue us. He will pour out blessings on us, joy and satisfaction and life. God's mercy is deep, more deep than we can measure. And he gives it to us, not just so that we can be better people, but because he wants us, he wants you, he wants your whole heart. So it's a, it's a strange passage, isn't it? But if you were here uh, a few weeks ago, you'll remember that we saw the people, God's people of, of that time, facing a plague of locusts. Locusts like grasshoppers, but in their millions, eating all their crops, destroying all their food. And Joel told them that they were to see that crisis as a reminder that they depend on God, a call to repent, to be sorry for the things they'd done wrong and to start listening to God again. Now, Joel in this chapter is going to describe the coming of those locusts all over again. But this time he sort of steps up the technicolor detail. Um, This time, the picture we just read, in some ways it's like those locusts coming. But in another way, it's like a nightmare of them coming. Like you, you know, the way that they would have seen them in their dreams in the years to come. And he's using that to compare it to God's great judgment of evil. So that the people can see in that locust plague the lessons, the reminders that it gives them about God's dealing with wrong and evil. And so these are words that are to be heard by each of us, Christian or not. By Christians as a reminder that we belong to a God who does hate what is evil and love what is good. Who, as his people, we, he holds us to a higher standard. So a reminder for us then to make any course corrections we need. And a reminder that we need always, continually, God's mercy and forgiveness. However well we're living. But for those of us who are not Christians, it's a call to examine our lives. To ask ourselves, are we ready for God's judgment? Is it something we could face? And if not, he's waiting. He is waiting, filled with mercy and forgiveness and love that is open to you today. So we're going to look at the passage in three sections. Firstly, 1 to 11, judgment is inescapable. Except that 12 to 14, mercy is unfathomable and gives us a way out. And finally, a call simply to come to God's mercy in 15 to 18. So 1 to 11, God's judgment is inescapable. Our passage begins with a blowing of the trumpet. Sentries on the wall have seen a distant enemy. It's like an air raid siren going uh, as the bombers are sighted. And Joel says that it is the day of the Lord that is coming. Not just a normal attack, but the day of the Lord. This alarm is calling to them to prepare for that. Now, Joel's hearers, when they read that, those words, they knew exactly what that was. For a long time, those people had been longing for the day of the Lord. In the words of Obadiah, it was a day of when God would have justice for the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you, and your deeds will return upon your own head. You see, they were an oppressed people. They were a people who had been invaded again and again, raided again and again, abused cruelly by their neighbors, suffered enormously. And so they wanted justice. They wanted those invaders and those enemies to face justice so that they could have hope and life and freedom again. Think of Ukrainians today in East Ukraine who have had their lives and their country ruined by the greed of soldiers on the ground and by the tyranny of foreign rulers 
who have come and invaded their land. And so these people are looking forward desperately to the day God would come back and set things right. He would have a day in his courtroom where the oppressor and the tyrant and the plunderer would all face justice. But for years, the prophets have been warning the people, prophets like Joel, God is utterly fair and utterly just, and he doesn't show favoritism. He won't let us off the hook just because we claim to worship him. He won't overlook exploitation and hatred and evil wherever it is. As uh, Peter puts it in the New Testament, judgment actually begins with the household of God. And so the prophet said to the people again and again, look closely at yourselves. You hate exploitation when enemies do it. Do you do it yourselves? So rich people, do you exploit work or poor workers in your country? Men are abusing women. Shopkeepers, are you trading fairly and honestly? And even if you aren't privileged in any way, are you always fair and just with your kids? Do you always do a good day's work for your employer? Are you honest and straightforward? Do you ever bully or gossip or make fun of people or push them around in the thousand little ways that we can do just to show that we're better or because we're having a bad day? Because, of course, God cares about the heart. He doesn't care just about the actions we get up to, but about the attitudes that we have deep inside. So I'm guessing most of us have not invaded many countries recently. We haven't even had the chance to call in a nice surgical missile strike on the annoying neighbor next door. But our hearts are not always full of the love and kindness that God calls for. So often the same hatreds and anger and violence and aggression is in there. It bubbles over so easily, even if we can't do the things that we see on our television screens. And so the prophets warned God's people, look, You know better. You've been taught God's ways. So when the day of the Lord comes, you have no excuse. Make sure you're ready. Are you ready? And Joel's language in this chapter is designed to tell them, look, don't think that you can just hide out of the way on that day, that you can just get out of it or ignore it. It will be inescapable unless you come to God himself. And so we have this description that looks like a locust plague, but as I say, is more like a nightmare of a locust plague. Imagine yourself standing on the the white walls of ancient Jerusalem and you see an enemy, an army on the distant mountains, or locusts in this case, just a shadow out in the distance. But this time it's an army larger and more mighty than has ever been before and greater than will ever be again. And they come on relentlessly. Everything in front of them and behind them being destroyed, not just by the teeth of the locust, but by fire. They look from a distance like cavalry soldiers or chariots, you know, the the heavy attack troops of the ancient world, of Assyrian kings and Egyptian pharaohs. But, of course, with those, at least, you know, you could climb a hill, climb a mountain, get away from them. But these ones leap across the mountains. Everyone looking out at Their face turns pale. They're filled with fear. They see the enemy coming on, charging like warriors with iron discipline, perfectly in line, never breaking formation, smashing through walls of troops as if they hadn't even noticed them. And then last of all, when they come to the city itself, the great city wall, they don't even pause. They rush upon the city and along the walls and into the houses, just flowing inwards, unstoppable, and they are everywhere. Now, Joel is in one sense describing locusts. If you go back over that passage and you have time, 
one person's actually called it the most accurate description of a locust plague from the ancient world. If you try to stop a plague of a big cloud of locusts coming to eat your crops with a spear or a city wall or a wind house, it doesn't work. They get everywhere. But it is worse. And these ones in particular, before them the sun and the moon and the stars fail. The earth shakes and the sky trembles. The most dependable things in the created world are faltering. And so it's a great shock when you hear the next words. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. This is not just some crisis or some evil. This is God with his army. This is God, how much God hates evil. He will come and destroy it utterly with an unstoppable force. Picture language, certainly, to be sure. God does not need armies. But that's what it will be like. And just in case... We thought these words are only for a long time ago. In Revelation 9, the Apostle John, the gentle Apostle of love, talks in the same way of God's day of judgment and of locusts with breastplates of iron, like horses ready for battle. As I say, it is picture language, but it's designed to remind us that no one's going to be able to hide out of the way. No one's going to be strong enough to stand against God. We all need to be ready to face him. Who can endure it? In Joel's words, the day of the Lord is great. So God's judgment is inescapable, and we need to be ready. And yet the second great truth is that God's mercy is unfathomably deep. It is enough to rescue us from that and more. God's mercy is unfathomable. The warning in the first part of the passage is given to draw us to mercy. Now, um, I don't... Do you remember seeing anti-smoking ads, that the kind of thing that stick in your mind? Because they're so horrible. <laughs> you know, I've got pictures of lung cancer in my mind that I was shown at school years ago, that uh, they're a pretty effective way of keeping people from smoking. They're not very nice, but it's better than getting cancer. And that's why they're done. God gives us this warning to drive us to mercy, to life. God spoke at the head of his army in verse 11. But the first words we understand are these. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to me with all your heart. Right now, while you still can, before it's too late, now, before you find yourself growing stubborn, now, before judgment falls, come. Whatever you've done, whatever guilt is weighing on your conscience, come and return to me with all your heart. Return, he says, with fasting and weeping and mourning. In other words, with a real attitude of sorrow. You know when you go and say sorry to someone, it doesn't help if you're smirking. I um, don't know if you've ever said that to a child, don't smirk while you're telling them off. But, or if you remember being that child, smirking while you were being told off. When you say sorry to someone, you need to come and, and your face needs to show you're actually sad. That's what God's saying. Come back with fasting and weeping and mourning. But rend your heart, not your garments. Don't, don't make a big show on the outside, all the same. It's your heart that matters. Not just a brushing up of your actions or lip service. He's talking about he wants you back, your whole self. And he wants you back because he is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. This is the most important statement of God's character in the Old Testament. It's repeated again and again after we first hear it uh, through the, when it's spoken to Moses after, right after God's people have rebelled and he is going to forgive them. 
He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He's warned them, but he relents from sending calamity. In other words, come back and he will rescue you from all of this. Now, there's a danger when we hear of God being gracious and compassionate that we think he's a bit like a vending machine. You put in a prayer, you get some forgiveness out. Very simple, automatic. doesn't matter how you live too much, but as long as you put in the coin of prayer, you get out the forgiveness. He's not. He's, he's a person, and we need to treat him with the seriousness that that means to not just take it for granted. So Joel says, who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. He says, who knows? Not in that he thinks that God's mercy is uncertain or that he's not confident in God. He is. But he wants to remind us it's not, it's not automatic. It's not something that we can take for granted. But all the same, it is incredibly deep and wonderful. God's mercy is unfathomable. And we need to take it seriously. We need to come back to him with our whole hearts, not just on the outside by a few prayers or coming to church occasionally, but actually seriously coming and praying to God, I've let you down. I've done so much wrong and I need your forgiveness. And that's what the last section calls us to do. It calls us to come to his mercy. It called them to come to his mercy then and us too now. To face the reality of God's judgment and therefore to rely on his incredible unbeatable, unfathomable mercy to rescue us from it. So in 15 to 16, we hear the alarm call again, trumpet again, the air raid siren. But now it's a call to action. Not to go and fight the enemy, but on the contrary, to come together, to come and pray to God for forgiveness. And it calls everyone, because this faces everyone. And it calls them now. You know, there's always a temptation to say to God, I'm just too busy right now, I'll think about you, God, later. Um... Life's really full right now. Maybe when life calms down a bit. Or when the kids are older. Or not so demanding. When I've got some time. But Joel says, come, everyone. You know, let the little babies come. They're not too small. And let the mothers come. They're not too busy. Busy as a mother with a newborn baby is. Let the bridegroom and the bride cancel the honeymoon just so they can come and come to God and ask for forgiveness. And let the priests, the people God had given to lead in prayer, let them lead in coming back to God. You see, this people, after they'd heard those first words of Joel, they might have been, well, scared, frankly. They might have thought, how can I come back to God like this? And so Joel says, let the priests come and pray for the people. Let them weep with tears to say that, to beg God's mercy and kindness. Now, we too are being called by Joel to come back to God, to drop everything if you haven't done it before and make sure you're right with him, to rely on his unfathomable mercy, to come, sorry for what we've done, but also for what we've been. Like them, of course, we may feel we need some help. Just as God sent those priests to pray to the people, for the people, prayed for God, God has sent us a better priest, one who wept for us, one who lived a perfect life that made his prayers acceptable to God and who is in heaven right now in front of God himself pleading for you. The Apostle John writes that of Jesus Christ. He is one who speaks to the Father in our defense. So whatever you're guilty of, you have someone speaking to God the Father saying, don't punish them, have mercy on them. 
and that is Jesus Christ. According to the book of Hebrews, he is a, a priest forever, able to come to God on our behalf. He's holy, he's blameless, he's pure, he's set apart from sinners. And he's able to save us to the uttermost, absolutely. He can save his people because he has already taken the weight of God's judgment, that unstoppable judgment. He has stood in that inexorable tide of judgment on evil, and it has flowed over him. God's judgment is inescapable, but he has taken it. Do you remember how when Jesus was crucified in Matthew 27, there was an earthquake and the earth shook, and the sun and the moon were darkened for three hours? There was darkness. Just as we heard in those words of Joel about the, the day of the Lord, that there would be the earth would shake and the sun and the moon and the stars be darkened. In the same way that happened when Jesus died. That had meaning. He was facing God's day of judgment, the day of the Lord, for us. So that when it comes to the final day of the Lord, we would not have to. He can rescue us. Let us draw near to God in the assurance of his rescue. And God did listen to his ancient people in their trouble. You see that? He, he called them back through his warnings and they listened and they prayed and he blessed them. That's what it says here. The, the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. Jealous in the sense, you, if you have a child who is being hurt by someone else, the feeling you have of wanting to protect them and look after them, that is a kind of jealousy, that kind of jealousy, not the unpleasant kind that we so often have. And he would take pity on them. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain and new wine and oil. Remember, after the locust plague, they were starving. They hadn't got those things. And he says, that's exactly what I will send you. I will give you back everything you have lost. That will be a sign and a reminder to you that as well as those things, you have the forgiveness that you were asking for. And the rest of the book of Joel hinges on this verse. From this point forth, as well as these good things, God is going to tell them about more good things to come that he is giving them. Things that he is calling them to do and be. The darkness and the difficulty and the judgment of the first half of Joel entirely gives way to new life and hope. In the same way, when we come to God and for the first time and are sorry for what we've done and, and promise to turn to him and to live for him, to give him our hearts. It is a turning point in our lives too. When we do that, we find how rich, how deep, how unfathomable his mercy is. That he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So, this morning, do you hear uh, that trumpet sounding from the book of Joel? Maybe you've been a Christian a long time and you just need a reminder that what we do wrong is more serious than we think it is. The selfishness and the pride in our hearts, the unpleasantness we can show to others is a bigger deal than we normally think it is. And God won't settle for that in us. But nonetheless, there is forgiveness for that and far, far more. And he has promised to rescue you and love you and one day to make you perfect too. You are worse than you realized, but more loved than you can ever imagine. So let's come back to him today and renew our relationship with him. To thank him for that incredible, unfathomable mercy and love.
But maybe, on the other hand, you are not a Christian. If that's the case, or if you're not sure, please take what Joel says seriously. We don't often talk in terms like these today. Um, They're not easy words to listen to. But God tells us them for a reason. It's so easy to drift into a picture of a God who is so fluffy and gentle and nice that he doesn't really care how we live. And that's not the Bible picture. It's a picture of a God whose love is strong and powerful and forgiving, but who is against all that is wrong and evil. Come to him, give him your heart, ask for his forgiveness. Tell him you're sorry and he will give you mercy and life and pour out a love on you that is far deeper and richer than you ever suspected. Let's come to him this morning. Dear Father, help us to take this seriously to recognize that you will judge evil but also to realize the incredible depth of forgiveness and love and mercy which is available and that you are willing to pour it out the moment we come to you Help us to feel and know that mercy. Help us to see the depth of that mercy precisely because we see the judgment it rescues us from. Let us know your graciousness, your compassion. Let us feel it and let us trust it. In Jesus' name, amen.